102.5 FM, KXSFLP, San Francisco, and KXSF.FM. You're tuned in to Spark, informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. This is Kelly Marlowe, host of Spark. Today I'm talking with Charles Hoskinson, a leading innovator of cryptocurrency. He's the founder of Cardano and co-founder of Ethereum, two of the world's most popular cryptocurrency platforms. He's also the CEO of Input Output Hong Kong, IOHK. We will be talking about the global promise and the momentum of cryptocurrency. To be clear, cryptocurrency is a currency that is digital and interchange with the term Bitcoin. And blockchain is the database or ledger that records all digital and cryptocurrency transactions. Thank you for joining me today on Spark, Charles. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a, it's a pleasure to be here. Today's money doesn't work for everyone, especially those who can't access the traditional banking system. Your mission is to innovate technology that can deliver financial services to 3 billion people that don't have access to them. And you have a vision of decentralization, cryptocurrency, and blockchain that will solve this problem. Can you talk about your vision? Sure. You know, the financial world is simultaneously one of the most boring and exciting worlds. It just depends on how you look at it and how you think about it. You know, the, the legacy financial system that we all live with, so everything from our credit cards to the way securities work, to the way that money works, it was really one of those things that just kind of organically grew like a Frankenstein monster. And through gradual consensus, we just started adopting certain standards and we kept creating layer after layer of complexity. And it's created something that works okay for most people in the developed world. So if you're from the United States or Europe, for the most part, you can do a wire transfer, you can have a bank account, um, you can easily send money to somebody with PayPal or something like that. You can pay by tapping your phone. There's all kinds of cool stuff that's there. But then what holds that whole system up is this mammoth backend that's in horrendously expensive to maintain. Uh, so basically, you have things like uh, know your customer and anti-money laundering. That alone is a many, many billion dollar endeavor and that's all just about compliance and regulation. And it's so expensive that it prevents small banks from existing. And even the big guys like J.P. Morgan Chase, they get it wrong. I think they had about $19 billion in compliance fines over the last 20 years. So then when you look to the developing world, places like Ethiopia or Uganda, Rwanda, uh, emerging economies that are very rapidly growing, they have incredibly young populations. There's real wealth there, but that wealth is mostly inaccessible to the developed world. There's about 3 billion people that live in this state. So we'd love to give these people bank accounts. We'd love to give them access to proper financial markets. We'd love to securitize their fast-growing businesses, some of them growing 10 to 15% uh, or more per year. It's, it's pretty remarkable to see the GDP growth. It's just simply too expensive to bring them into that legacy system or build that legacy system there. So there's universal consensus amongst everybody. It doesn't matter if you're Jamie Dimon at Chase. It doesn't matter if you're a crypto anarchist, Bitcoin fan, the whole spectrum, regulated or otherwise, uh, that the system needs to change. And the system, instead of being this patchwork thing that grew over the last hundred years out of necessity, it needs to be an intrinsically decentralized and global system 
to make it very easy for people to move value from uh, one party to another party, assess counterparty risk, and be able to add complexity as needed to transactions based upon what you're trying to do. Also, there's a huge demand to say, why are we treating assets differently when the payment system should be the same? So we look at Microsoft stock as a very different thing than gold or the U.S. dollar or intellectual property. But the reality is that the underlying mechanisms of moving these things, of deciding who owns these things, applying regulation to them, are all basically the same. So you can actually find almost like a financial stem cell, if you will, that can mutate and transform to whether it wants to be a security, a stock, or a bond. So this is really the exciting part of FinTech, is that there's this huge global conversation of necessity of how are we going to update everything, make things operate much more efficiently, get to a world where smaller actors can innovate and compete, and they don't have to spend billions of dollars on very expensive compliance desks, and get to a place where we can reduce a lot of waste, fraud, abuse. The other problem is regulatory. You know, the reality is that it's not clear how to regulate things in a global capacity. We have international standards, but then a lot of people just tend to follow the European Union or the U.S. standards because those are the dominant regulators. But what happens when China emerges? What happens when you have Africa emerge? They're going to have different laws and standards. And if you're told to do business globally, you're going to have to hire lawyers in 50 different countries or 60 different countries and navigate these really complicated transnational regulations. It just means that the only people who can participate safely are the largest amongst us, not smaller countries, smaller actors, smaller entities. So there's a lot of question about how do we automate regulation? How do we make regulation machine understandable? And how do we apply that to every asset class? whether that be a currency like the U.S. dollar or the euro, or a commodity like oil or gold, or a stock, or in many cases, really exotic, cool assets. Like, for example, you could securitize your time. You could uh, securitize your home. You can do this literally at any scale. So that's, in essence, what our industry is about, is we're kind of exploring how do we do things a better way and more open way, and how do we build systems that avoid a lot of mistakes of the past. In particular, we're really curious about how do we avoid centralized control. Because anytime you build these things, whether it be the Bank of International Settlements or things like the SWIFT standard or all the stuff that kind of makes that those rails work so that the system is, is able to function, you generally give a lot of power to a few people, a few corporations or a few governments. And as a consequence of controlling those, those choke points, they end up gaining an enormous amount of influence over how the market operates. And they usually install anti-competitive or things that really aren't so fair for smaller entities or consumers. So as we reinvent everything, we're saying, how do we make you your own bank? How do we put you in control of your own data? How do we put you in control of your own identity and your property so that when you want to use the system, you can't be shut out of the system or you can't have prohibitive expenses that are tacked on that benefit a large multinational company or some uh, federation that's controlled by a collection of large companies. That's really the revolution here. And of course, if it works this way, it's incredibly easy then to get it work on a cell phone. And then it's incredibly easy to get this to start working inside the developing world, uh, whether that be Ethiopia or India or any other place. And there's a huge financial incentive for doing this, because if you can get it working there, you've suddenly created 3 billion new customers in the fastest growing economies in the world. And as they get wealthier, you can now do business with them. And so that's uh, that's basically what we're seeking to do as an industry and what my company works on. Okay, so I'm hearing three things. that Our current compliance system is outdated. 
It needs to be mm-hmm. replaced, but that's more in the first world. There's the issue of control that can be resolved with decentralization, but control is a very complicated issue, right? Because mm-hmm. who's going to control the standards and who's going to say who can do what and you know what is possible and not possible and it's going to be different by country. And mm-hmm. then it sounds like that these banking challenges are particularly striking in the third world and highly corrupt countries. Right. Well, we have challenges right here in the United States. Um, you know, we have tons of unbanked people, a surprisingly high percentage, you'd think. We're the most developed financial economy, yet despite that, there are many, many people that don't have bank accounts. This is why Walmart started opening money centers. It's a very profitable business interface there. And then you, ha- you have a whole bunch of people that, um, even if they're banked, they don't have optimal financial services, or it's very difficult for, uh, for them to prove certain things because they live in a cash economy. And it's, we've even moved where he got the money from. They take it through civil asset forfeiture, and he has to sue the government to get his money back. I mean, billions of dollars of that surprisingly happens every single year, and it's pretty close to theft if you think about it. So there, there are certainly ubiquitous problems no matter where we look. And what we try to do is say, let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's argue by analogy, and let's ask ourselves, where have things worked well before? So we have already a great example over the last 40 years of something that's grown from nothing to something that has covered the entire world, no one controls, and is standards-driven and provides value to all of us. And that's the Internet. It went from a few servers wired together that uh, ARPA created with Vince Cerf and Bob Kahn to this global Leviathan with billions of users. And if you really ask yourself, well, hang on a second here, who owns TCPIP, the, the heart of the Internet? No one does. Uh, who owns all these web standards? Uh, no one really does. This is a much more federated system, in many cases, the centralized system. So using that as an analogy, you say, well, could we reconstruct the world banking system, the, the world financial system, so it looks more like that, where it's driven by protocols and algorithms, and then you push complexity to the edges. So you still have compliance, you still have laws, you still have identity, but the edges of the system are far smarter than the center points of the system. Uh, this is the opposite of how it works right now. The interfaces to the world financial system are quite simplistic, but then what happens is all this magic in the back end that big companies and government regulators and uh, federal standards and these things work with that add metadata on and add regulation in, and you don't really get a complete transaction. You have to add all that in, and when you do that, it means that anybody who doesn't have access to that system can be shut out. A great example would be look at marijuana growers in Colorado or all these other places. You have the state of Colorado say, you're now a legal business. You're legitimate. Uh, you, you pay your taxes just like anybody else. You have uh, the ability to operate. You're licensed and regulated. They say, great, we're going to go follow the law. Uh, the people of Colorado decided that's a good idea. And then the minute they go to open a bank account, they say, oh, I'm so sorry. You guys can't have a bank account. And they say, well, what is our option? They say, you have to live in a cash economy. So you have all these mid-sized businesses now with literally millions of dollars of profit every year having to pay their taxes with bundles of $100 bills and store large amounts of cash, and it's extremely dangerous for them. Uh, they get robbed all the time. It's like you know, everybody knows these dispensaries are cash-rich and because they're fundamentally unbanked, even though they're a lawfully en- uh, engaged entity. Why? Well, because the bank is a federal operator, and they realized that even if they wanted to do business with a lawful acted Colorado customer, because it's not legal in other states, and they're dealing with these systems, 
to plug into that system, uh, if they accepted a, a marijuana grower as one of their customers, they wouldn't be allowed to plug into that system. And this is exactly why you want to push complexity to the edges, because what you can do then is build a local system around that cooperative, get them banked, give them the ability to operate, pay their taxes and so forth. And it's, that's just one industry. There's numerous other industries that are having issues, and it just depends on the political winds. Suddenly Visa or MasterCard won't work anymore. So you, you're basically being pushed by not even a law, but just by re- opinion of regulators to silently out of the banking system. And that's a really dangerous precedent to say that your business model is legal, the people have given you the right to operate, but then because somebody who's elected or unelected doesn't like what you do, they can just push you completely out of the system. And that's universal. It doesn't matter if you're a marijuana arms in the United States or you're talking about, let's say, a coffee grower inside Ethiopia. You have to be very careful how these systems are designed because if the wrong people get in charge of these systems, they can use these systems to exclude their political rivals or their competitors. Uh, In Ethiopia in particular, they're a huge agricultural economy. They're one of the world's largest growers of coffee. And we didn't know this until we opened up an office in Addis Ababa, but the coffee business in Ethiopia is like Game of Thrones. It's a pretty crazy thing. And there's all kinds of shenanigans and crazy stuff that happens. And to compete with you, instead of competing on quality and price and good business principles, many cases you just see people remove your ability to access the market. Say, oh, it's no longer legal for you to you know, go to this washing station or to sell to this group. And you say, well, then where can I sell? Oh, you can't sell them anywhere. The point of our industry is to say that everybody should be treated equally. And you push the standards to the edges, and then you can programmatically add in any scheme you want. And once you've established what the rules are, everybody will be treated equally with those particular rules. And because these are programmatic, they're very easy to update, and they don't necessarily require central coordination or authority to update them. So you can have a much more dynamic global free market uh, that you can contextualize commerce to the jurisdiction it's happening I completely agree with what you're saying, that there's definitely access issues in the first world. Um, and it's even more drastic, right, in the third world countries. I assume that you were putting a lot of focus on the third world countries and that you've been putting investment there. Is that correct? Yeah, our company operates in more than 40 countries, uh, but uh, our heart and soul is definitely in a pan-African and uh, Eastern Europe and Southeast Asia capacity because that's where the need really is, and that's where the real good customers are going to be over the next 10 or 20 years. You know, Jim Rogers used to say that if you were born in the 19th century, uh, you'd move to London. If you were born in the 20th century, you'd move to New York, and the 21st century, you'd move to Beijing. And there's some truth to that. You know, for every time, it's not who's in charge today, but you have to identify who's going to be in charge tomorrow. Where's the growth and opportunity going to be tomorrow? And when you look at the dynamics, particularly of Africa, it is the youngest and fastest growing continent in terms of uh, uh, economy and, and all, every output you could look at. Ethiopia in particular, 70% of the population is at or under the age of 30. A lot of them are college educated and uh, they're online, they're digital. So you say, wow, you have all these young people who don't like the systems they're in. They're in the market for a new one and their economy is growing 10, 15% per year and they're transitioning from an agricultural economy to an information economy. They're even leapfrogging the manufacturing side of things. So as an entrepreneur, I say, well, these are the economies I really want to be in because there's a huge mismatch between raw resources and raw talent, raw wealth, and market access for that. 
I mean, one could make billions of dollars just going and identifying really nice companies in Ethiopia and other places in Africa and helping them go do IPOs. Because in many cases, they can't because of the way that their markets are structured. And if you could find a system to do that, it would be a wonderful investment opportunity. I'll just give you one great example, a very particular example. So the Agricultural Transformation Agency, uh, which is a, um, a, a smallholder farmers agency in Ethiopia, they represent about 15 million farmers who live on less than an acre and a half of land and mostly sustenance farm, uh, they regularly give out fertilizer vouchers. So these are vouchers that allow you as a farmer to collect some fertilizer to fertilize your crops. You get increased output as a result. You make more money, and then you reimburse the agency for that voucher. The repayment rates are unbelievably high, usually more than 90 95%, and that's unheard of in microfinance. And the margins on these loans can be quite significant. You could look at 20 30% returns. So once you have good systems, you could actually securitize that debt, just like they used to securitize mortgages or other things, and even put in sovereign guarantees. And then suddenly you have a financial product that comes out of the developing world that's as safe as a financial product as a AAA bond in the developed world with a 20% return. I mean, this is just the example of these types of revolutionary products that you can generate if you have market access and you have the right systems. The problem is that people don't trust the rule of law. Uh, the regimes there tend not to be as stable as they need to be, and that assets can sometimes be arbitrarily seized. So the point of the industry that we have is if we can build immutable rules, then we can protect those rules from the governments themselves. And this is especially important if you don't really trust the government actor or there's some instability. Furthermore, it's incredibly important to get records that can't be tampered with. There's so many cases of diaspora returning back to their country after wars ended, like Syria, for example, with the recent crisis with ISIS, or people from Afghanistan coming home. And suddenly, all the land claims are now in uh, dispute because the registries of who owned what were were destroyed. And it's not clear who actually is the rightful owner of land and property. Uh, and these are just devastating local tragedies, and they prevent the economy from ever really recovering, and they lead to more conflict. The, the same technology that allows you to quantify who owns a stock or a bond or a currency, if you have an immutable ledger behind that, that's the heart of our industry, this concept of blockchain, you can use that for property. So even if the regime changes and it goes to a crazy government like ISIS, you have the capacity to be able to reconstruct history from a very neutral way. And you can actually know who's the rightful owner to various things. So there's just so many incredible applications to this and you know, so many incredible business opportunities that come out of this. And it doesn't matter if it's on the small scale uh, or if it's on the national scale. It's one set of tools for everybody. It's just the repeated application of those tools, just like the Internet. What have you implemented or invested in the third world that has worked? So we have a lot of infrastructure in Ethiopia in particular because we our director of African operations is actually based there. He lives in Addis Ababa. He's half-time in London, half-time in Ethiopia. And uh, we've done a, a lot of pilots and various things. So we've been looking at things like municipal currencies to make it easier for people to pay their utility bills. It, believe it or not, that's actually a, a real big problem for a lot of people throughout Africa. And some cases, there's a lot of waste, fraud, and abuse there where you have to wait in line for hours to pay your power bill. And even after you do it, they still shut your power off unless you bribe somebody. So there's a lot of demand to improve those basic systems. Uh, we've looked a lot about regional currencies. Uh, so, you know, in particular, there's a great fintech innovation that came out in the 2000s called M-Pesa, where they tokenized um, cell phone minutes 
and people started actually trading cell phone minutes as they would a currency, like the U.S. dollar. So we're very excited about these types of things. And we have a lot of agricultural pilots that we look at there. In particular, we love working with farmers and vouchers and these things because they map very well onto our system. We're also quite keen to look into supply chain systems. Uh, agricultural supply chains in particular are rife with quality control issues and attestation proving issues. Uh, for example, if you want market access, uh, right now we've actually in, in Mongolia been having some conversations with the, the government there because they have this thing called the third neighbor policy and they want to start trading their beef to the United States. Before the FDA lets them do that, they have to prove lots of things about the safety of their meat. And the problem is it's too expensive for them to do that with the current way the agricultural system works. Uh, so we've been looking at that alongside looking at a, a pilot to do something about medical supply chains there because uh, there's a huge overconsumption of antibiotics in Mongolia. Yeah, but that technology is directly applicable also in in Ethiopia and other places. You'll find often that there's like templates or archetypes. So once you have a kind of a good idea of how to do a supply chain in a rural area with low-tech people, uh, you can reuse that over and over again in many different jurisdictions. In the United States, we actually have some partners as well. Uh, we're a Wyoming-based company, and we have a very strong relationship with a lot of local Wyoming partners. One in particular is Beef Chain, and uh, we're working with them to track and trace cattle, sheep, and other uh, livestock inside the United States. And they have a great working relationship with the FDA uh, because there's higher and higher standards that are being put on our supply chains to get an understanding of whether the food is safe and also proving claims about the food. Like when you go to the supermarket and you see things like grass-fed beef versus uh, grain-fed or uh, the beef has certain characters like never given antibiotics or something, uh, you'd like to be able to verify as a consumer that uh, these things are true. And our goal is to build systems where you, just with your cell phone, you can scan a pack of meat and uh, you can see the entire life of that. Um, we actually did a pilot with New Balance, ironically. Uh, we did a, something called Real Chain, where they released a, a shoe line called the uh, Kawhi Leonard uh, shoe line. Uh, and we created an authentication product that you could verify that it was authentic. Uh, and that same technology can be reused to verify that a Rolex is authentic or you know, a Gucci bag is authentic and so forth. Uh, and all of these have that same heart. So the very same technology you can use for our currency, for property, for security. You can also reuse to verify a handbag is correct or that a cow, where a cow is in a supply chain, and that's indeed the right cow. And once that metadata is put in, uh, people can't change that metadata. So it's a really exciting company because, you know, I get to be a, a farmer rancher one day and put on my, my boots and the next day I get to think about luxury products and the next day I get to be a banker. You know, it's, uh, it's a pretty wild ride. Okay, Stu, we're talking about the blockchain aspect of the technology. So do you yeah, believe should we be moving to cryptocurrency as well? Well, that's a good question. And the reality is we are, whether we like it or not, because the Federal Reserve is eventually going to create a digital currency. In fact, the latest attempt was uh, during this uh, $6 trillion bailout. Uh, there was a, a huge, huge push for, uh, for uh, that in several versions of the legislation. Uh, the People's Bank of China is already piloting a digital currency. And, uh, there's a, and this is part of a broader initiative of most governments to go cashless. It's cheaper, it's safer, it's easier to enforce tax compliance, uh, these other things. And so it's not a question of will we go to digital assets or not. It's more of a question of what is the nature of these digital assets and what do you control and what is controlled on your behalf. The magic of our industry is it pushes the power to the edges. 
So you can't be locked out of your money. You can't arbitrarily wake up one day and have your wallet frozen. Uh, and you're mostly in charge of how that works. Whereas these central bank issued currencies, which are being proposed, it's much, much like a, a simulacrum of the original system in that uh, basically you have access to the interface, uh, but uh, the actual mechanics of how they're spent are done in a closed private way. Uh, you don't get to see the ledger. You can't verify uh, if uh, that money's been counterfeited or not. You're trusting some third party that's opaque, usually a central bank or some intermediary there to, to do that on your behalf. This is why I like the cryptocurrency side much more than the digital asset side, because I, as a user of the system, am able to self-audit that system. We call that inclusive accountability. It's a very nice property. Uh, and this is super important when you talk about transnational standards, because the minute that you move from one country to another country, like we may trust the Federal Reserve, but I'm willing to wager that the, the Bank of China and the People's Bank of China and you know, the, uh, the, the, the Russian Central Bank probably don't have the same faith in the integrity of our institutions. So then the question is, well, how do you get them to all play nice? And then you have to go through these really complex multinational agreements. And the reality is those are totally unnecessary when you have inclusive accountability. You don't have to create any bureaucracy or centralization to move these assets around the world. You just simply have a common copy of the ledger. Everybody can see it. And because everybody can see it and audit it, you know it's correct. In fact, many of my employees in Eastern Europe, in particular Ukraine, refuse to be paid in Ukrainian money. They don't want revenues. Uh, for the entire time that they've worked for me, they've always wanted to be paid in Bitcoin, regardless of its volatility. And it's worked out very well for them just because they don't trust their own government uh, in many cases or the currency of the government. We have a lot of contractors in Argentina as well. And uh, there's a very low faith in the solvency of the Argentine government or the reliability of the peso there. And what a lot of people do is they'll actually convert the peso to U.S. dollars and hold them and then convert them back only when they need to buy something just because they, they lose so much value holding the underlying asset. Well, U.S. dollar has really held. And with extreme fluctuations in cryptocurrency and for any currency to be exchangeable, you, know, you have to be able to exchange it right. and it has to be truly stable, Right. Right. And so you can, can generate a stable coin or a stable currency once you have something that has value. And this is, if you look at the evolution of money, we started with commodity monies, then we kind of went to a gold money. And then we said, hey, we're going to create a representation of gold using a certificate. The Rothschilds did that. And then we said, okay, now we're going to disconnect uh, this, uh, this uh, certificate from gold and just have it float as a piece of paper, as fiat money. And we, we cut those strings in 1971 in the United States. Um, we got off the Brent Wood standard. So similarly, you know, you look to analogy, you say, well, what happens with cryptocurrencies? Well, first you create kind of like a proto-commodity. And that's what Bitcoin functionally is. It's digital gold. And like gold, it fluctuates. It's very volatile. Uh, it tends to get more valuable over time, as gold does, because there's more users to the system, more people value it. But in any given day, you know, go up, down $500. It's a, it's a pretty crazy asset. So that's not ideal for an economy. You couldn't use that base asset as a stable thing any more than you could use gold for loans or for purchases. But what you can do is, given that that exists, you can create financial products that actually have a great degree of stability. So we've actually seen these attempts in our space, and especially in an area of our space called DeFi. Uh, for example, there's one called MakerDAO, where they take an asset that floats, in this case it's Ethereum, Ether, and then what they do is they use that through some clever algorithms to generate an asset 
that is relatively pegged to the dollar. And it actually, throughout the life of the asset, has been fairly stable. It's been tracking the U.S. dollar pretty closely. And then you kind of have the best of both worlds. You have this synthetic asset that is value-stable, but like Ether, Bitcoin, Cardano, ADA, these things, it has the exact same uh, uh, properties as a cryptocurrency, inclusive accountability, decentralized control, that universal ledger that verifies all these things. And in a way, it actually gives us a chance to have a very Darwinian approach to central banking. If you look at central banks, they tend to be very conservative, and they don't do a lot unless they're poked and prodded by politicians. And when they get it wrong, they get it catastrophically wrong, like in the case of Zimbabwe or Venezuela or any of these countries where hyperinflation has occurred and the currency has been debased. It has catastrophic consequences, destroys the whole country. So central banks tend to not really want to rock the boat too much. But the advantage that we have as an industry is because we're decoupled from any particular economy, we can run real-time hundreds of experiments about how do you create stability in an asset and how do you allocate risk and you know how do you build these things in a way that they're mostly automated and don't require trusted central parties to keep them going. And eventually we'll converge as an industry to a pretty good solution. And then that solution can become a standard that merchants can believe in. And what's nice is you can decouple from anything. So right now our target is the U.S. dollar because that's kind of the gold standard for the world. But it's entirely possible in the future you could create baskets where you actually look at a representation of many different assets from gold to other things and say that the buying power of one unit of this currency that we create, which is very low cost to create, is the equivalent of this basket. And there's projects like Saga and others that are kind of going down that SDR route and trying to figure out how to do that. But we as an industry can do these things super quickly. We can test them super quickly. People can start using them. It's done in the open. A lot of cases it's open source and royalty-free and patent-free, and people can play around with it. And if it works, then suddenly you can have a completely new transnational international currency that no government controls that you can possess, use for commercial activity, and it has predictable rules, and you can't be shut out of it, which is just amazing. We've never had that in human history. Okay. Why is cryptocurrency exchanges so hackable that's creating this instability? Well, I mean, any asset that's an emerging asset is going to have wild volatility. What historically has happened, though, is the Securities Exchange Commission has insulated American investors from those types of assets and said, well, if you're going to buy things, we only want you buying things that probably aren't going to go up and down 90% in a day. Uh, so this is why the IPO laws are the way they are and why exchanges behave the way they are. So given that we're a completely fragmented, decentralized uh, ecosystem and there's many, many different countries and tons of things going on and 3,000 cryptocurrencies, you're going to anticipate a lot of volatility. But then what happens as the market matures is that that volatility starts going away because the assets kind of stabilize in value bands. We've already seen this with Bitcoin. You know, it seems volatile today, but it was actually significantly more volatile on an absolute sense uh, than uh, just a few years ago than it is today. And you see financial products like options and other things emerge. And then consumers can basically use that to hedge and protect and trade risk and so forth. And as these markets stabilize, eventually the markets become very credible. It's a little difficult because uh, normally when you have these types of assets, they start in one place like America or Germany or something like that. They get stable and they grow out of that place. This started everywhere. So you have all kinds of hands, whether it be China or Russia or U.S. or India, coming in and out and all kinds of surges. And it just creates a lot of havoc. 
so it's super exciting from one perspective because you can make and lose fortunes quickly, just like the the, the old oil days or the wildcatting days. Uh, but it's also very scary because you know if you don't know what you're doing, um, even if you do know what you're doing, there's still a significant amount of risk. Uh, but that's like all emerging economies. I mean, we saw the same thing during the dot com revolution. People recognized that there was enormous value to the internet, and this would fundamentally transform every single dimension of human experience. But it was really difficult in the 1990s to properly qualify and quantify that or understand time horizons. For example, the market recognized that the Amazon business model was going to be huge. But unfortunately, they were a little optimistic on when it was going to be huge. And so they gave him a share price that wasn't quite deserved. And it took 11 years for Amazon to get back to its all-time high after the shares collapsed in the early 2000s. And the same thing happened with Google and you know, all these other companies. Uh, you know, they, they had big ups and big downs uh, in their early histories, uh, either on the private sense or publicly traded assets. And then eventually the market started stabilizing them. And now when we tend to look at Google, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, there's a lot more stability in those stocks. Okay, so similarly, so, cryptocurrencies have that viewpoint. So right now we're in the Wild West. The sector yep. needs to mature. So could Facebook's Libra project then with its extensive reach, become the new global digital currency system that could then be viable to compete with the traditional financial system that the government is now concerned about? Yeah, that, that, that was the intent of Mark Zuckerberg. Um, in, in application, it didn't work out exactly the way that he had hoped. Um, it's, uh, it, it was the first time that the U.S. government really took cryptocurrencies seriously as a competitive threat to the sovereignty of the U.S. dollar. And this is why we saw such an aggressive pushback from the Senate and the Congress and an immediate disgust. I mean, if you actually looked at the design of Libra at its core, there was, there was nothing really terrible with it. And it was a pretty federated group when it, uh, when it came out. And they had all the usual suspects you would suspect. And they had a great platform to push it over, billions of potential customers. Uh, the problem is that, you know, uh, just that, that U.S. government doesn't really like so much competition, and they didn't want to wake up and have people start pricing things in Libra instead of the dollar and to lose that competitive edge. So as with all things, there's a scale of of concerns. And when you start out, you look at things like law enforcement, you look at things like um, consumer protection, you know, you look at things like avoiding scams, uh, these types of things. And then as you get bigger and bigger and bigger, it starts altering the political reality of the world economy. And eventually gets so big that uh, political actors now have to actually think of this in terms of nation states. A great example would be the Internet in China. It was a curiosity for a long time. And then eventually the Chinese said, well, hang on a second here. If we allow this thing to propagate, it's going to be really difficult for us to control the media in our country. Let's go build a great firewall and let's actually start heavily regulating the use of this, um, of this infrastructure. And similarly, you see a whole spectrum of government responses to cryptocurrencies in that respect. So in many ways, Libra was just a, a natural evolution. A particularly bright entrepreneur with a great company recognized that something has enormous intrinsic value to society. And by building this in the right way, uh, he would make it a lot easier for people to do business all across the board. I mean, if you were Uber, I believe they were part of Libra. They were thinking, God, if we have Uber in Addisbaba because of capital controls and all these other things, every transaction we make, we have a 20, 30% loss uh, just being taken out of that transaction because of Forex, just currency trading and other concerns. And then you have Libra come by and you, your fee is zero. 
It's like it's like point one penny or something like that. It's just so small. So they say, wow, we want to be part of this. It allows us to have better relationship with our customer, you know, and this is better for everybody because we can lower our prices and we can get more customers and ultimately perhaps share more value to our service providers. So that was, you know, the theoretical concept, but it certainly ran into a lot of resistance. But in many ways, it's productive resistance because it kind of forced the conversation upon the U.S. policymakers of, well, how are we going to regulate cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology? And the reality is that the old regulations are wildly out of date. The primary regulation uh, that we use uh, for securities, for example, is Securities Exchange Act of 1933. And the primary test of whether something is a security or not is um, called the Howey test, which came from a Supreme Court decision in 1948. So we're basically taking regulation made during the Great Depression and shortly after World War II, and we're applying it to these digital assets that live on the Internet. It's just bonkers. And poor SEC, they keep telling the Congress, hey, guys, uh, we don't have enough tools in our tool bag to properly regulate these markets. You need to pass a law. But the minute we start having that discussion, then it, it opens up a lot of really uncomfortable things about what are we doing that's good for the U.S. government versus what are we doing that's good for the world and what are we doing that's good for our citizens. And these are all not necessarily complementary things. In many cases, they're at odds with each other, and it becomes really difficult to sort out how do we do these things. And then we're always worried about retaliatory uh, regulation. So, for example, we've had a lot of influence as a company on regulation of nation states, especially around cryptocurrencies, in particular Switzerland. I was a co-founder of a project called Ethereum, and I based Ethereum in the canton of Zug. And at the time, we were really the only cryptocurrency company there. And so we kind of grew from a curiosity to a major industry that brought billions of dollars value into Switzerland. And it got to a point where uh, FINMA, the regulatory body there, actually started changing Swiss law to make it more accommodating for cryptocurrencies. But every single time they had that discussion, they were always worried, well, will this in some way divorce us from the world community? Will this in some way put us at odds with the US standard or the European Union? And suddenly now we're under more scrutiny. So there's this kind of this ebb and flow in regulation and this ebb and flow in the discussion. And, and Libra really just took that up to Superdrive and pushed it. And what the U.S. government was super concerned about was the, the fact that if Facebook was allowed to do this, the rest of the big guys would do this. You'd see Amazon do something, Microsoft do something, Google do something, Apple do something. And at that point, collectively, there's too much power in those actors for even the U.S. government to push back and stop them. Their lobbying bodies are too strong. They have too much consumer interest. And they have gargantuan transnational platforms. I mean, you can imagine Windows having a wallet built in. Suddenly you have a bank for 3 billion people. Everywhere there's Windows, there's a wallet. You think of Google putting that into their service. Again, multi-billion per platforms. So they, they kind of had to stamp it down for a bit, but they didn't kill it. Just started a, an underground conversation that's starting to gradually percolate its way up. And we're definitely going to, in the next 24, 36 months, see a lot of political action occur. New laws passed, new regulatory standards that come, new ways of handling securities. And it'll kind of start slowing down the Wild West nature of our entire industry and converge our industry to a, a more legitimized, um, solid technology set for businesses and governments. I mean, it does have ramifications for the Federal Reserve, for the entire financial industry. I mean, the question then, can cryptocurrency successfully coexist with the traditional financial system? Because if it can't, then the government is more likely to kill it, right? Well, that's like asking, can media coexist with the Internet? You know, it, newspapers in particular, 
some like the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, they found a way to survive. Uh, many did not. And now the New York Times, I would argue, is a far better publication uh, than it was during the print days because uh, they just have new dimensions and capabilities, especially in their visualization of data, uh, which are quite remarkable. Um, whereas, uh, you know, we always look to the past and say, oh, well, you know, how will you overcome this incumbent industry? You have to ask yourself where the value is. If it's a situation where you can make far more money and you can grow far bigger in system B over system A, system B will inevitably win. And there's just no reality where A can sustain itself for too long because profit-seeking people will start cracking through uh, that system and eventually find ways to legitimize it. And then once it gains root, it grows too quickly, and then people start evading. It's like keeping a secret. If you tell too many people the secret, eventually somebody will reveal it, and then it's revealed for everybody, that, that smart cow effect. So I think the question is less, will the Federal Reserve somehow kill this, or will they go into a war with each other? It's more about if you look to the future, 2060, and you ask yourself, what is your relationship with value and wealth, and how do you represent that? I think what's going to happen is we're going to move to a universal wallet, a universal way of representation of wealth. And so instead of saying, I have X dollars, or Bill Gates is worth this much money, you will say, okay, I have a portfolio of wealth, and this is a personal choice that each and every one of us make. So I'll have a certain amount of U.S. dollars and a certain amount of gold, and perhaps my equity in my home is represented this way, and my car is represented. And all these things are just one big portfolio, and obviously they're custom to us. And then when you go to the store, like Starbucks or King Supers or any of these places, and you go to initiate a transaction, uh, they get paid in the unit of account that they want. So you could pay in gold, they receive dollars. You could pay in Bitcoin, then they receive euros, whatever that happens to be. It could even be crazy things like labor units or what have you. And the infrastructure that holds that entire uh, thing up will be blockchain-based. It'll be cryptocurrency-based. And every one of those assets will behave with predictable rules, predictable regulation, predictable standards, and have all kinds of cool consumer protection built in and all kinds of cool checks and balances built in uh, so that makes it much more efficient. And the cost of these transactions will be extremely low, like less than a penny for each transaction. So gone are the days of a 5% credit card processing fee or you know, 50 cents a transaction or something like that. And then, of course, this opens up all kinds of new, really exciting business models. You can, for example, imagine uh, advertisement-free newspapers where they allow micro-tipping. If you read an article and you like the article, you can just click like, and when you do that, you give them 0.1 cents. And if you have three, four million readers and they regularly do this, it's nothing to them, but collectively, they're making thousands to tens of thousands of dollars per an article that you publish. It has completely bias-free journalism. So these are examples of these business models that can magically emerge and open up. And there's even great companies like, um, uh, for example, the Bats guys with Brave, Brave Browser, instead for basic attention token, where they're doing just this. They say, hey, we, we, there's going to be data collection, so you might as well get paid for your data, get paid for advertising, and we'll give you a share of the action. And that's represented with this, uh, this token, and it's one of the fastest growing web browsers. It's, um, it's growing by leaps and bounds. It has to mature. Like the early internet days, no one understood how it worked, as well as with cloud computing, right? When people thought of whipped cream when they heard cloud computing. So it's going to take a while for this technology to basically go mainstream, and then there's going to be iterations of it for us to get there. 
which you're predicting to be when, 2060? No, I mean, I just say you always look to the future. So you give a crazy out there date so that nobody debates it. Um, you know, I'll just give you a personal example. I, I, I was in Mongolia last year, and I was in the Gobi Desert riding camels, and I took a break, got off the camel, and through a translator, I was talking to one of the camel herders who was a nomad there. And he asked me what I did for a living. And I said, I was an entrepreneur and I'm in the cryptocurrency space. And he said, oh, you mean like Bitcoin? And I said, exactly like Bitcoin. And he said, yeah, I have some. Uh, it's just unbelievable that a technology invented 10 years ago uh, by some anonymous hacker over the Internet has gotten a level of penetration that an unbanked, undigitized nomad who trades in camels in the deserts of Mongolia actually knows about it and has used it to the extent that he owns some of it. And his brother holds it for him in Ulaanbaatar, the, the capital. Uh, so things grow very quickly. And, uh, you know, like the Internet itself, there was a long percolation time in the 70s and 80s and early 90s. And then suddenly everybody started getting it. And we saw a huge surge of interest. It didn't meet initial expectations. So we saw a regression, a collapse. And that's exactly what we saw in 2017, uh, a huge price appreciation in the markets and then a regression when there was a mismatch between expectations and reality. But then the real people kept building. And over time, we saw the rise of Google and the rise of Facebook and Amazon and Netflix and these other incredibly disruptive business models. And that's exactly what's now happening in our industry. But it's happening faster than the Internet happened because we have all the infrastructure of mobile computing, so your cell phones and all the infrastructure of the internet. They had to go and rebuild the internet and rebuild cell phones. This would never be a reality, but we get all those things for free. So, you know, now we can have another business model. I remember my own life. I, when I was in college, uh, I uh, talked to a guy. He said, I'm a cell phone developer, a cell phone app developer. And I was like, what the hell is that? Like, is there any money in that? Now the vast majority of applications are mobile first or mobile only. And there's multi-billion dollar companies that are being built on uh, the mobile platform, and nobody even thinks about Windows anymore. And that was inconceivable as early as 10 years ago. So these things have a way of creeping up on you very quickly. And really, the questions you ought to ask are, what are the incentives? And the questions you have to ask are, what are the factors that would contribute to that growth? And given that these systems are open, given that these systems have tremendous value that you can make, tremendous wealth you can accumulate, and they really do solve incredibly difficult problems in creative ways that um, reduce a lot of the trade-offs of the past, there's a certain inevitability to it. And so it's not a matter of if it's going to happen, it's more when and when being sooner than you'd think. And I think this technology is going to be much the same way. It's going to permeate into a lot of consumer products. It's going to get white-labeled, just like the Internet's happened. And uh, people will just start using it organically out of greed or necessity. And then that will lead to the rise of this across the globe. What was interesting is that with the current financial challenges due to the pandemic, many of the small businesses and entrepreneurs haven't been accessing the money that was released by, by the government. And right. I couldn't help think, well, it would really be helpful if uh, blockchain or someone's technology came in and, you know, kind of handled the inequity and distribution issues. Right. Oh, that's a great example. I, I mean, they, even when we want to give money away to people, it's expensive and difficult to do it in the United States of America amongst taxpayers, people we already know a lot about. So you're 100% right. This was one of the reasons why there were a lot of proposals in the initial legislation about creating a digital token and getting people to distribute that because they say, well, it's a lot easier to just have people download a cell phone app, authenticate, and then wake up and have the money there. And then they can spend it just like they spend a credit card, tap their phone on an NFC reader, 
and uh, and there you go. So wrapping up, since you're a futurist, what are the top three predictions you have for cryptocurrency in the next decade? Well, I think our industry is going to see a lot of mature growth especially growth around blending of regulation uh, with our system. That's really the last mile of how do you wire on the old laws with the new laws. And there's going to be a great Hegelian synthesis there. You know, you have your thesis of the new way and the antithesis of the legacy way, and we'll synthesize it in some really cool way. So that's coming. And when that comes, then all of a sudden we'll realize that financial stem cell will have a universal asset that can become anything, a stock, a bond, or commodity. And enormous efficiencies will be gained from that. Second, uh, we'll see blending of other concepts with the financial aspects of the system, in particular identity and data management. There's this huge question of right to be forgotten and GDPR and, you know, data is the oil. And there's great books that come out that talk about surveillance capitalism and so forth. And we're starting to realize that the products of Google and Facebook and these other companies are ultimately us. And we're giving away that value for free. So there's a big consumer pushback, and you know we have to come up with a compromise where we can prefer, preserve the profound value that these companies provide, but it, at the very least get a cut of the action. So we'll see new concepts like self-sovereign identity, uh, new concepts like representing identity is something called the DID, the Decentralized Identifier. They'll emerge and start replacing passports and start replacing credit scores and other artifacts of identity. And then they'll get blended into the data economy. And because they are, we can start actually micropay people for participation in the advertising markets, uh, just like Bats is doing with Brave. So I think there's going to be a, a huge growth there. And third, I think there's going to be a rise of all kinds of new business models. I mean, I'm a small business. We have about 200 people, uh, but we operate in 40 countries. And it's very difficult for us to do that. And there's, I have to have an in-house general counsel and a CFO and it's all this stuff, and I spend lots of money to keep all that running together. Um, it would be a lot easier if I had a business that lived in the internet as opposed to living to bound to a particular jurisdiction. And we have terms for this. It's called the DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. And uh, there's a lot of progress and work about how to build these things, legitimize these things. And even some countries like Singapore and Malta are even having discussions or have already passed legislation to give these entities legal rights. So we're going to see a huge emergence of revolutionary business models that are very different from traditional corporations with a CEO top down, and in many cases don't even require a CEO, but like a cooperative uh, can operate just as effectively. And then suddenly you have a completely different way of working and doing things, especially in this age where people are starting to realize they can work from home and they don't need a centralized office. So I think there's going to be a, a lot of that coming. Uh, in the next 10 years, we'll see exponential growth in, in those domains. Thank you for joining me today on Spark. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for having me on.